It's the Life of Gem live video podcast. And today we have a big treat. We have Sean Kravica. Is it Kravica? I'm going to unmute you really quick so you can say your last name for us. No, Kravica. You got it. Kravica. I did it. Woo, woo, woo. I, uh, my friend Alan, I uh, messed up his name for months. So we are so lucky to have Sean here. He wrote this amazing book called Hold Still Fast. It's uh, We're going to talk all about it. So I don't want to give too much away, but let's talk about this. I'm going to read his bio and then bring him in. Then he's going to read for us. Sean Kravica is a Californian writer. He wrote Stumbling Out the Stable, a story about mischief, authority, and occasional intoxication, my kind of work, and Hold Still Fast, a collection of 200 stories, 50 words and each under. And that's why this episode is called Writing with Brevity, both available from Pelicanesis. And I put the link there. He enjoys climbing rocks and spending time outside with his love, Denzel. So, did I? Hopefully, I said her name right too. So, welcome, Sean. Yay! Hey, thanks, Jim. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Her name is Denelza, but nobody gets her name right. Denelza, Den- beautiful name. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to have you start off by reading about five, seven minutes, whatever you want to read, as long as you want. So I'm going to put the camera all on you. And um, I'll, I'm still here in the background. But go ahead and give us a taste of this beautiful book. For everyone watching, I put the link to his book in the comments. So please get it. It's called Hold Still Fast. You will not be disappointed. So go take it away, Sean. Hey, thanks, Jim. Really appreciate the introduction. So I'll read a handful of stories here. To start out, play. She played guitar in the city street. Her red hair dripped over her shoulders like melted wax. Ratty and knotted, wooden beads enclosed in its dready parts like pearls and clamshells. Someone dropped a crumpled dollar bill. Her guitar case closed. It almost stopped her, but she played on. Next up, we're gonna go to On the Clock. On the Clock. The trail led through gnarled trees, leaning leaning windswept trunks with skeletal branches to the glimmering sea. The horizon lonely but infinite. He sat inside a squat kiosk at the trailhead, cloistered from the unmistakably salty air, leafing slowly through a National Geographic, beholding the world's beauty. Across the street. Every night the garage light goes on at the neighbor's house. A couple lives there. Been married for a while, I think. It turns on late, around 10. It goes off around 2 or 3 in the morning. I see it from my home office, long after the workday is done. Failure flag. He painted the newest toy soldiers yellow, except for, the, except for their helmets, which he made white. They were going to be an army of retreat. He needed cowards. His battlefield, its cornstarch trenches and painted on creeks, had too many heroes. His fantasy world needed reality, someone to blow it. With a sports theme for the next one, safety. She slid fast against the rain-soaked turf, flakes of itchy grass crawling onto her leading leg. Her foot struck the ball first, sent it upfield towards relative safety. The opposing players stood now, 
shed her allegiance temporarily to ask if she was okay. The whistle sounded, so high-pitched. You read the first story um, of a few dialogue pieces. So there's a number of dialogue pieces. There's only two characters who repeat, and this is them. So here's an introduction to, to what they're all about. Patient zero. The squirrel chattered, tail agitated. She stopped and imitated it. He kept walking. Why do you hate squirrels? One day, one of them is going to bite you. Then I'll get the squirrel disease and give it to you. We'll start the zombie apocalypse. You and me, baby. A kind of freedom. Cracked charcoal patterns, spider webs and feather bunches spread as far as could be seen across the exploded sky. Far below, through the thick gunmetal air, the horse ran. Its bulging legs driving, white chest heaving and mane flowing as coral waves under sea. No other living thing around for miles. But what was it like? For all the volumes, for all the volumes written in history and of it, pages turned soundless for how long? Language spoken at the first flame's hiss, the heave of a pyramid brick, a staff thud against castle floor, hysteria at a village plundered, an oar dipping into virgin waters of the Willamette, lost. And close with this story called Friends. She stepped outside to listen to music, the moon wrapped in a gauzy haze. A bat swung in and out of visibility around a tree. Chaotic dips and swoops, it looked lost. This was the suburbs. She turned the music louder, the misfits. She imagined the bat feeling at home. Woo! I love that poem. I uh, highlighted yeah. that poem. That one was for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And we talked a little bit about this in the green room and we'll get into my questions in a minute. But the, the titles of these pieces, like the piece that you just read, uh, Friends. Um, do you know what page that's at? I'm, oh, yeah. Page 181. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, the title and then this idea that um, the moon's wrapped in a haze, a bat swings in and out, you know. Um, and then she turns the music louder, right? And this whole thing is called Friends. Yeah. So, I mean, it says a lot about the narrator. And we're going to talk about who the narrator in these are. But I just, I, I, I find this book so interesting because you talked a little bit in the green room about how this is really an art piece. And it really is. It's a hybrid of storytelling, poetry, um, with these titles that really give you a gateway into the piece. And each piece, if you can just tell everyone, is 50 words or less. That was a strict rule, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, set, set a standard um, for these stories. And not really even a standard, just, again, a rule. I mean, yeah. it's fun to kind of play within the rules. And something that was really important to me, too, is that I would have abbreviations. So like one of the stories says AKA is an example. Well, mm -hmm. I liked how AKA sounded better than also known as. It just kind of flowed better. Yeah. But it still has to count for three words because otherwise I'm totally cheating it. So. Oh, so even if you used a shorthand, it would count for three words within the 50. 
Yeah, because I didn't want to, I did, I just didn't want to create loopholes um, in that regard in terms of the actual text. So, because rules, um, funny enough, right, can actually be pretty fun when you play within them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of magical. You created this 50 words or less rule on your own, right? There's not a it, form, right? No, there's not. I mean, there, there certainly microfiction um, is a genre that seems to be getting a little bit more attention. You know, Pelicanesis puts out the microfiction. Yeah anthology um but they don't have that's a bestie bestie he just did a misfits poem or uh <laughs> prose poem uh so just so you know she's a big punk rocker so go ahead what were you saying about pelicanesis i thought it'd be a good good one for the show um yeah pelicanesis you know puts out the microfiction collection so there's not like a set role for um for that word limit i was one of these stories was in a journal called blinking and they actually do have the 50 word limit oh. uh, and then there's a journal i was in like years and years ago um called 2020 and they had a 20 word limit so there have been journals I've encountered that have had like word limits, but in terms of microfiction. Um, and I've seen, I don't know if you yeah. uh, remember like the 10 word memoir or something that uh, there's a couple famous ones. Yeah. Um, okay. That sounds familiar. Yeah. It's like a one sentence memoir, kind of like yes. there's a famous one about a baby and uh, yeah, well, it reminded me of that. Huh? The Hemingway story about the baby. Yeah, exactly. That was like, it's apparently like, it's called, you know, kind of like the shortest story ever written. It's, you know, for sale, baby shoes, worn once. Exactly. You, yeah. you know exactly what I was talking yeah. about. Totally. I once took a class where we had to do that and I found it super difficult um, to condense. And we're going to talk about writing with brevity, but just really quick. Why do you hate squirrels? I love that line <laughs> that you quote in the dialogue pieces that you read. The on the clock one, and we're going to talk about this later, there is, you know, this thread about work within this book and how soul sapping and kind of um, disengaging and cubicle kind of watching the clock can be. Um, and we'll talk about that more. But I just wanted to make those notations on the pieces you read, which I loved all of them. So oh, let's get into this. Go ahead. I said, thank you. Ah. Thank you. So how does writing in super short forms like this? So every piece in this book is 50 words or less. How does that differ from writing a short story, which I did read an excerpt of your short story, um, Stumbling Out the Stable, which I loved. And you're really good at the short story genre. But how did that differ? Like when you were doing this, like, was it a game at first? Like, I'm going to try this out. Or did you go into it knowing, you know what? I can create a collection of these really brief 50 word stories. Some people might call them poems. It doesn't really matter what you call them. Um, of these 50 word pieces and that it would work all together. Yeah, um, I seriously just wrote a few and something kind of clicked. Um, that some different scenarios in my uh, life at the time, which we can get into, really made a lot of sense for how this format made sense for me. And what I really liked about it was I wanted to write complete stories. So, mm -hmm. um, and they really do teeter on the edge of poetry. Um, but I wanted to ensure that I was still creating actual plots. Yeah. You know, in any short story, um, a character, this is what Vonnegut said, a character still wants to want something, even if it's just a glass of water. So in these stories, there's still a want for something. There's still um, a drive. There's still a conflict, however subtle or however implicit. Mm. So for me, it was really just a fun challenge to see how much can I pack into a really small space and like 
I, I wouldn't want to go any shorter than that. Like I said, there's that journal 2020. I don't think I would hazard a book that short. There is a 20 word story in here, but um, this was like, gave me just enough of where I felt like I could tell a, a story. Yeah. And the other thing is just in terms of how I like to write, um, I actually prefer editing more than I, I like writing. Like if I could wake up tomorrow and the novel I'm working on, if that was just like done and I could just start editing it, I wouldn't mind saving mm. the time. Like, yeah. I just love making something better. And once I have something to work with, that's really fun for me. And this no, really I really fun. love editing too. And people don't get it because it's a different side of your brain that for me is, um, it's easier to kick in my editing um, mind. You know, the writing yeah. creativity stuff. Sometimes it just, it, it has to be the right time and place and I need space. With yeah. editing, I think it's really fun to cut, 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 you know, and change. I like to do a story in past tense and change it to present tense and okay. kind of see which one I like. Or I use a lot of first person. Occasionally I'll say, oh, I wonder what this would sound like if I could write third person, which I'm not very good at. So, yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, I, I could see how this book would use your editing skills because you have to winnow it down to the bare bones of what a story is. And um, I want to read Mark Givens. He's your publisher for Pelicanesis. Brilliant. Um, and everyone go to the Pelicanesis website, look at their whole catalog, but definitely buy Hold Still Fast. He says, and I and Mark is always very profound about um, literature and the way it works. And he says, it's tricky to hear these stories one after another, because I think each one needs more space around it. Each one deserves more consideration. I think that's very true. These are hard to read aloud. I like how they work together. Um, so I, I really like like the discordancy in some way. But I do think he's right in the sense that, you know, every story, there's a lot of blank space. And I did not read your, I read it twice and I did not read it quickly. I would kind of sit there, read one, savor it, think about it. Um, you know? No, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the best thing I could possibly hear about it. So. Yeah. And, and let's talk about work really quick. Cause you and I had just had this very interesting <laughs> conversation. Like for example, on page five, there's this poem called grin and bear it. Uh -huh. um, and do you want to read that one really quick? Cause I think it'll set the stage for our conversation a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Let me pull it up right now. It's on page five. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Grin and bear it. The speaker spoke about happiness in the workplace. It was a required seminar for the employees. <clears throat> he, wore, he wore a yellow shirt, had years working to support his thesis, had years of jokes, anecdotes. He appeared reasonably happy, more than they did, sitting, listening, stapled packets about positive thinking beside them. <laughs> <laughs> and the title is called Grin and Barrett. Yeah. And I've been in those seminars. Um, I have two, to be honest. I, uh, <laughs> I guess that some of these are a bit more true to life than others. So this one's a bit more verbatim. So. Yeah. And so what is it about work? And there's also like this COVID theme of kind of abandonment and like places and stuff. But mm -hmm. I really saw a couple themes of music. And then there's this work theme that is so profound that really touched me because I'm a government worker and I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And this idea that our work self is not our true self, right? right. And right. this idea, of, especially if you're a creative and, and you work in like uh, communications and so it's somewhat creative, but 
you're also a writer, right? Working on a novel, working on, you were probably working on this book at some point. And yep. so, so what's that about? It's, I think you already, you're, you hit it really, you know, there's, um, where do you feel most connected? Where do you feel most you? I mean, there's another poet mm. writer who, um, Kevin Auspice, I was talking to him about his, his work, which was a memoir of playing punk rock in Pomona. And he's like, ah. and I'm working for a school district that, um, I don't think this is wrong to say that, but he's talking about, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I sometimes I just miss being me. Yeah. And so you can imagine, you know, with work, um, and I don't even think this is like a malicious thing. Like, you know, manners are good. There's something to be said about a PC code of conduct. Although if you're a decent person, you're good anyway. So it doesn't really, yeah. you know, like you don't need to like, drop an F bomb occasionally. It's not that yeah, big like about, if know? you're good to people, like the workplace yeah. personality profile kind of doesn't matter. If you're good to people and you genuinely care about people, yeah. I think you'll be good. But anyway, you know, work, there's a work demeanor that evens the playing playing field and, and really fosters, you know, getting along, which I think is important. And I think it's good big picture for what work is, but you know, there's just, but it's still that thing. And it's, especially if you are, as we said, creative, you know, for some people, they find jobs and whatnot, in some of these places, and it, that's their thing. Um, yeah. I guess I'll just be perfectly honest. You know, that work stuff just isn't my thing. And even yeah. if I do well at it and I work really hard, my job is just not my thing. You know, it's not what I care most about, but like, you Ooh. know, like you can't all be painters, you know? Right. We're right. living. Like we can do it. So I, I try and give my all to that when I can, but you know, otherwise um, I, and I guess the one thing too, to wrap up the work thing, I just feel like it's archaic that we work as many hours that we do because technology has advanced so much. Like we don't carry around briefcases and do like math by hand. Like we have Excel. So like you can shave some hours off. Yeah. And you know, um, yeah. your friend about the, yeah, your punk rock. I don't, I wish I felt like me. I think I did corporate law and then I found public defense and it felt more like me. And then COVID happened and I kind of had these epiphanies and it is not me anymore. I occasionally I'll wear a punk rock shirt underneath my suit that no one can see. Just so I remind myself right. sure. who I am. This is me. I told you earlier, like you can call me whatever you want because it, it I try to be present and I try to be myself in these interviews because it's the only way it works. If I don't share with you, you're not going to share with me. Yeah. And if I'm not true with you, you're not going to be truthful with me. And we're not going to have that synergy. And I think that's why it's hard when you find something you're good at that is not your work. It's really hard to, to come to that epiphany that work isn't everything. And I, my work was everything for me for many years. It can be. And, you know, and I, and it's, and it's not to diminish again, the value, again, yeah. I believe in doing a good job. Um, it's just, it's this, you know, again, it's finding that balance with also still not losing it. And there are certain parameters that have to be in place at work so that yeah. it is at least, I guess, tolerable. Tolerable. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> that. Sorry kids. That's like not setting a real high bar, you know, if anybody's, but anyway. That's just, you know. Well, Juno Diaz, who wrote um, The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, which won the Pulitzer Prize, he used to teach Vona, which I used to go to. And um, I was at a speech that he did. I never took him as a teacher, but he would do like these keynotes with us and stuff. And he told us, don't make your work support you. Like, don't make your writing work support you. So he had done many things. He had moved furniture before he was a professor and all this stuff. 
And so I've always had that in the back of my mind. Like if nothing else, public defense and my full-time career gives me the ability to have enough money and eventually retire to what I can do my writing full-time. And so I always try to be grateful for that because my mom was a waitress. My dad was a truck driver. They didn't have the luxury of the arts or even doing it part-time because they worked two jobs. My mom worked at Circle K and worked at a restaurant. And my dad owned a bar and worked as a truck driver. And so um, they didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. They had to. They had kids to support. I don't have kids. Um, But I know what you mean. I think it's not a high bar to set, but it's also these kids, like maybe they shouldn't buy into that aspect of give your job your everything. Work 80 hours a week when you're getting paid for 40 and you're a government worker. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, especially depending on what, what you're doing. I mean, I don't work in a hospital. Yeah. You know? um, so what I do isn't life and death. <laughs> right. Mine kind of yeah. is sometimes. Um, and yours could be. I mean, yeah, what, it is you know? sometimes. And I do care and I do my best, but yeah. I'm not going to go in. Uh, I'm not going to be there till 10 at night anymore. I'm just not going to do that. You know? Yeah. I think that's totally fair. Um, well, I- the way you get around it in the government is you speak up. You say this is not a tolerable environment. This is not a tolerable caseload. I need help. And you keep on saying it until they effing listen. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it takes two years. Yeah. Anyways, okay. let's get back to the book. Um, so how so how does this differ? When, when you write a short story and you write these pieces, what was the switch you had to make to keep, you talked about editing it down, but what mm-hmm. else did you have to do going into it? And then I want to know how you structured the pieces. Like, did you just like go through them again and again and reorder them? Or did you kind of write them and then they organically came out in a way that made sense? Um, no, there's a lot of intention with them. I wrote, mm-hmm. you know, I really just wrote, um, I just wrote them, you know, I just, yeah. it's, I wrote more than appears in the collection. I think I ultimately, okay. I ultimately considered 216, but I, I liked the number of 200. Yeah. Um, and I wrote, 200 than, you guys, yeah. what a deal. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I wrote more than 216, but I considered 216. I will whittle down from there. I'm not, I'll kind of go at the, at the end first here. Um, in order to order it, I kind of call this like my album. I'm not, you know, a musician. I've dabbled in percussion and whatever, which has had an impact on how I understand writing and cadence. So I've done that mm. much to impact my writing, but I'm not a musician. But um, I put, I wrote out the title of every story I was considering. And oh. I kept it by 216 strips. And then I, I, I wanted to create two columns. So I had a column of, you know, 100 stories and 100 stories right next to each other. Wow. And I was very intentional with how one story fit into the next and how the story after it also connected to the story before it. And then nobody would know this, but I kind of did this little like kind of trick where I um, gave the stories a twin. So oh, interesting. Story in one column matched another story kind of like at its opposite. So like the first story reflects the last story in some regard mm. and all the way. So like if there's, you know, if you were to take like a page number Mm-hmm. and another page number they add up to 201 then that's those are the twins so if you go to say page like you know 50 then story 151 and 50 are twins because you know there's 200 pages in the book 201 do the math it like it's your your twin story so the title piece hold still fast and horizon those are the twins yeah 
They do. Yeah. And you can see there might be, there might just be a certain description that sort of is mm -hmm. shared. There might be a theme that's shared. Mm -hmm. There might be something that kind of implicates what if that's the same person. So when I, when I read stories earlier, I mentioned um, I had to cross the street where the guy is watching this light go on in the garage and he doesn't, he just wonders about it. He's, he's up all night in his work office, which is weird and watching his neighbor, but he doesn't know what's going on. And then it's twin stories, a story where there's a guy who has, um, it's called failure flag where he's got his little toy soldiers. He's got his train. Oh, I love that. Poem. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, that so they're piece, twins. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So like maybe the guy in the garage is a guy who's across the street from the guy watching. So you know what's so interesting about this conversation is this is why I love this podcast. I like to find out these little mm -hmm. things that maybe you only know. Like, could you ever figure that out without knowing it? Maybe not. But I'm a book nerd and I'll go through this piece and look at each twin just <laughs> because I love that about it. You know, um, and back to the sequencing issue. I was just talking to someone at a Cure concert about this. And... Um, we're talking about sequencing and albums and why disintegration is such a great album is the mm -hmm. sequencing. The And at a concert, the order that they play pieces in is so important. And, you know, one of the best albums that, of all time, Ziggy Stardust, is really a book to me. And it's the yeah, sequencing. Sure. Yeah. So I do think there's a lot to be said about how much time and intention you put into sequencing these because then it really does become... You, oh, and uh, Mark Givens said that's brilliant. It really does become a narrative in that way. You exactly. know, and I'm a twin yeah. too, so I love the twin idea and oh, the mirroring, true. right? Yeah. The mirroring. Mirroring, that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. So I'm going to go back through this book and look for all the twins. <laughs> yeah, please do. I would, I would love that. So, yeah, I mean, there was a thread. I wanted it to connect. And yeah. that's the way, at least, even if only I knew it, that's how it connected for me. So that's how I structured it. Yeah. No, no. And it's very, very profound when you think about things like these, like what creates art? It's really the intention, right? Um, someone can throw some paint splotches on a wall, but if you're just throwing the paint splotches on a wall to decide what color you want to paint your room, that's not really art, right? Um, art is the intention with the artistic talent, like combined, right? It's, right. it's that intention to do it. It's really not the product. It's the intention. Like, what are you intending to do? And with these, you were clearly intending to create a piece of art, right? Um, the mirroring and all that. And it may, you, we may not know it, but we feel it. I like that. Do you know I what like, I mean? Yeah, I really appreciate that. You can feel that intention in it. You can. Um, I had Stephanie Barbie Hammer on here and she said something about my book. I never mentioned The Wizard of Oz in my memoir at all even though it's a huge influence because Jenny just needs to go home. Right. And I write a lot about the wizard of Oz anyways, yeah. and she caught it. And I was like, how did you catch that? I never reference the book, that story ever. And, and no, I don't reference a character, nothing. And she, she just felt it. And that's, you can feel that mirroring here. It's, it's that uh, surrealness, almost like a deja vu thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And taking the strips of paper and feel, figuring out how to order. Um, Andrew Pham, who's a famous writer who wrote Catfish and Mandala and Eaves of Heaven. And Catfish and Mandala is about his his um, transgender sister's death. But it's really about him and his family crossing um, to come here from Vietnam, crossing the water. And mm -hmm. then he goes on a bike ride across Vietnam. And he, he English was not his first language. And he told me that he... he 
ordered that book by throwing all the stories on the ground and just picking oh, them wow. up and keep on placing them around. That's so it's awesome. like that. Whatever you were doing. I got to meet him. <laughs> He's right after yeah. my own heart. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You took these little strips of paper and no one would be able to figure this out. But for the person who wrote the, you knew the pieces so intimately, right? It did. Yeah. Um, although when I was organizing them, it still took several days. I think I ended up taking a day off of work, <laughs> a vacation day, just so I had to like finish it. I was really locked into it. It was really, really fun. I was really enjoying it, but you know. Yeah, it can be engrossing and kind of OCD. Like you get obsessively compulsed with it and you just got, it's like you almost got to stay in it or you're going to lose it. Exactly. That's the editing appreciation that I like. And of course, Mm -hmm. life is going this way. You know, I have a friend who I, I I rarely see because her schedules are just so conflicted. And I remember he called me, it's like Friday nights, like, you know, my wife's out of town. Like, you know, we haven't hung out in a while. Just come over. Like, I really just can't. I haven't seen you in like a year almost. I can't. Really, really bad timing. I really got to do this. Of course, it's good, but it's like, of course, life works that way. You could have been having a beer, having fun at a bar, right. but no, you were at home with these little pieces of paper. Yeah, I had, I had to stay with it. So, but life does that to you. It does, and I mean, the book is better for it because, like I said, mm-hmm. you can feel the the surreal nature of it. And what I loved most about it was the fleetingness of it all. Mark Givens talked a little bit about this earlier, how they kind of each need to stand alone. That is very true. But they also each work as this, uh, someone called it a Polaroid on the back cover, a Polaroid snapshot of a moment. To me, it reminded me of the old school carousel that my dad had that he would click, 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 click. And you don't always have enough time to like sit in each image but if you go through it again and again so if you read this book more than once which is kind of what I personally think you have to do with something like this like go through it kind of feel it and then go through it again and find those little nuggets and um so are you taking us on a trip is that the whole goal like you're you're taking us on a ride I ultimately yeah I'd say so at least thematically um Mm -hmm. because really the theme ultimately is about mental health mm. altogether. And there's different recurring themes. Like you mentioned, there's a work thing, there's music themes come up, um, certainly relationship themes. There's, um, and definitely very explicit themes about mental health and people having kind of nervous breakdown moments. Um, there's some other stories, which are, I'm going to touch on the surrealness element of this because it's like, there are some other stories which are just kind of quaint, which on their own, probably you know like like you know the story about the there's i wrote a story about these um young boys going down um a hill with an ice block mm-hmm. and then they go down until it kind of melts and then they look at the end to say goodbye and it's sweet but like on its yeah. own is that like what i'm is that like the kind of story that i'm focusing on that i want to write like in a collection it is is it like my main theme that i'm writing about no but it's sort of to counterbalance like the story of stories of people losing their minds yeah you know i mean there's you know a story again about like you know a little girl discovering hot cinnamon and she thinks it's cherry but there's like it's called innocence lost again a sweet story but that's to counteract the story where the guy stabs somebody else in the throat right because life has all of that and i mean if there's one thing we all realize it's kind of the really surreal nature of the fact that um you have just a whole lot of suffering in the world and you have a whole lot of, you know, still suffering, but not like that. Yeah. Like everybody suffers, but there's a, a whole gradient there. And it's a very American thing to be aware of because you understand that 
there's a lot of problems in this country and our society and a lot of lack um, for a lot of people, but yet it's still a really, you know, it's maybe the privileged country, you know, and yet to be an American is to be aware of all the non-American countries. And, yeah. you know, it's like, we're always aware of that contrast and to whatever degree we, we justify it or don't think about it or ignore it or try and do something about it, all those things, we're all aware of it. And I think then that to me is a pretty surreal contrast that we just, to some degree, all have to be aware of. So those stories reflect that. Yeah. And, you know, that idea of mental health and then the brevity works within that, right? Because um, usually when someone's dealing with a mental health crisis, you you become super fragmented, Mm -hmm. super um, discombobulated, right? And so to capture that and then to contrast them with these different stories, it's really interesting because, you know, I knew there was definitely like that kind of like struggle aspect to it. But when you say mental health, that makes complete sense. And it really does if you go into it. Um, not, And it's not like this simple idea, right, that we all have breakdowns. It's this idea that life grinds you down, right, that life just keeps on coming at you. And like, there is a lot of suffering in the world. There just is, you know, I see it every day in court. And okay. I'm, I I always think, gosh, what would it be like to work in like a romper room and like see these kids playing and, but there'd be suffering there too. There'd yeah. be a little kid with bruises or something, right? Totally. And it's relative, everywhere. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, it's really interesting. You know, with my organization, we, um, and I do believe a lot in the work my organization does, even though I don't, you know, want to be there 40 hours a week, 32 would be nice. But <laughs> yeah, 32 would be if, good. If, if that, if Mark Takano's bill ever passes about dropping the work week down to 32 hours, cool, you know, things will be better. Anyway. I just saw an advertisement for a job that was like a man, um, maximum 32 hours a week. I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. It was I like a, could, yeah. I think we could evolve there, but anyway. Because um, people work faster and do more when they have less time. Yeah. And right. So I really do think a work culture kind of um, doesn't really understand how people work. And that if you give them more time, they're not necessarily going to be more efficient. That's that's one of my whole issues, right? It's like it's it's not efficient to work this way any longer. Again, yeah. Technology is abounding. Um, you know, we can work quicker. But anyway. That's yeah, I'm really on board with that. So, but regarding, and now I forget what I was even leading into because I had to go on my own tangent and work. <laughs> no, with my organization, you know, we, oh, we, yeah. we're a funding agency and we invest in really um, profound programs that support mm-hmm. um, the health and development of young children. Oh, and that's fantastic. So, while I'm in marketing and I put in a lot of communication pieces um, and a lot of print collateral and branding that has, you know, happy images and happy kids. Um, you know, playful colors. We do a lot of really serious work. I mean, mm-hmm. in some cases, you know, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. You know, you can hear about cases where children are in really difficult home situations, perhaps, um, you know, the parents have any host of issues that people do. Um, you know, we, we discuss, you know, post maternal depression, which is totally normal and very common, but we don't have a lot of acceptance about it. Like, it's like most women experience postpartum depression. We don't talk about that. We don't make it okay. So, and you don't give them the support they might need is the reality of it, right? So again, they're suffering. Their kids are suffering. The husband's suffering. Everyone's suffering. All that. And it's, and yet it's even a normal thing, you know, because suffering in its own right is normal. Um, Yeah. 
so we do investment programs that support people in those situations where it's in-home counseling, remote oh, counseling, cool. whatever it may be. And I really believe in that. But that because does kind of speak again to that contrast. You know, you have um, even the idea of childhood, you know, can be so riddled mm. with with suffering at an early age. You mentioned, you know, a romper room. Kids still skin their knees. They still get hurt. It's this constant. Yeah. So when life grinds you down, what's your endurance? Yeah. No, very true. And sometimes those of us that had rough childhoods in some ways have more resilience to um, traumatic adult environments. Um, they say most public defenders and criminal defense lawyers grew up in uh, very chaotic homes as kids. And that's how they're able to tolerate the pain mm-hmm. of the work that they do. So it's really interesting. In some sense, the suffering gives us resilience, but in another, it does make us more fragile. Um so just one thing that I found really interesting, because towards the end of your reading, you're reading these dialogue pieces. And so clearly you see kind of the uh, categories. Who is the narrator of these? Is there one narrator? Are there many? Is there a group of narrators? Because I was trying to figure that out. I kept I, when I reread it the second time, I was like I was looking at what person you were writing in. Um, trying mm-hmm. to figure out like, you know what I mean? Because you switch. Uh, most of these are written. Is it mostly in third and but mostly there's some third. first person? Yeah. Yeah, mostly third. Um yeah, I'd say there's there's I mean there are many narrators, mm-hmm. although there's mm-hmm. certainly a, a, a pretty consistent tone with a lot of stories, even though sure. so it's funny when you asked me that I hadn't really even thought about it, to be totally honest, but I think that there is sort of a, a consistent voice. Yeah, which is your voice, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. say so. Um with regard to the dialogue, there are there are two characters who recur in this book. Okay. They're a couple and they come up multiple times. And was that from the squirrel story too? Is yeah, totally. A couple? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I could definitely hear the cadence of their dialogue. It, you did, I at least felt like that. The, oh, that's that same couple again. You know, oh, kind cool. of the way they yeah. talk to one another. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, that was intentional for them to be a repeated couple. Um, usually they're more like, relief because they're um yeah there's some sad stuff in here but they're they're pretty pretty happy overall they're funny um what was the story about the squirrel what's the name of that one i want to find that one because i uh, had a patient question. zero uh that one's at page um yeah where's that thing page 139 139 um yeah. the reason i love this poem so much is i have this phobia of goats and it's because of um <laughs> i went to uh my wow. husband went on, on one of our first dates took me to Santa land or whatever in Big Bear. Oh, that used to be there. oh my gosh. On one of our first I dates. And I had gingerbread in my purse and the goat knocked me down and attacked me. Okay. And to this day, I hate goats. <laughs> that's they're perfectly well. When you said you had a goat phobia, I couldn't imagine what that could have anything to do with. So he that's stood up it. on me and knocked me down. Yeah. Well, that's really important. A full grown goat is very tall. And they have horns. And they have horns. Anything with horns coming at you is, is frightening. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I the squirrel chattered, tail agitated. She stopped and imitated. He kept walking. Why do you eat squirrels? One day, one of them is going to bite you. Yeah. I mean, it's then I'll get the squirrel disease and give it to you. We'll start the zombie ap- apocalypse, you and me, baby. So even though there's no like, um, you know, in most dialogue, you'll have a signifier. She said, he said, yeah, but you don't use that, and that's what I love about your dialogue. Is it? It's story like but you kind of adjust it for the form because you're not going to waste words saying he said, she said, it's like figure out who's saying what, right. I'm trying to go more in that direction. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I'm 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 trying to definitely implement that more as I as I can. And he said she said you know it works too, but I'm really trying to let the language carry it a bit more when I when I write dialogue now. Yeah, no, I mean it's interesting because um, when you can do it well, it really does work. The people who try to do it that don't know what they're doing, it can be you're like who's saying what. But if, yeah, totally. if you know the voices within the piece, it can really work. You have that birthday cake poem. Is that the same couple? You know, so that one's a bit ambiguous. There's a couple mm. where um, and it probably is a couple, but, you know, I kind of, some of them are ambiguous even for me. I, I wanted it to either mm. be, I mean, that one's, yeah, okay. I had a couple in mind for that for sure. What about Come With Me, the French toast one? Oh, that's a couple, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely right. Yeah, that one's more clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was very clear. Um, yeah. The birthday cake one, I wanted to leave space in a couple of them where, like, if somebody really, um, it could be a parent child if that spoke. Oh, it's like there's there's a case where like there's two in the in the museum and he kisses her cheek. So that could be a, you could still kiss your loved ones. She could be very affectionate. Yeah. It also could also be your child. So. Couple of them are ambiguous. They may not be. Yeah, that birthday cake. Rereading it, it is ambiguous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Some of them I wanted to leave a bit of space for. Yeah. How someone how someone might read it, so maybe it would relate to them. And it's why I don't really get into any sort of like real descriptions of people. Um, that mm -hmm. story in the beginning where I described the um, guitar play, player's hair is pretty unusual. I don't really get into physical descriptions of people. I do have settings. So I wanted it to be as open as possible so that people can in insert themselves into it. Yeah, talk about how music plays a role. Like, was that also intentional? Like this theme of music throughout? It's it's not everywhere. It's not in every poem, but mm -hmm. it definitely keeps on hitting this beat. And you say, you know, you, you have some musical background. You're, you're not a singer or a musician, but you had some percussion stuff. And I definitely felt that the music added to the beat and the rhythm of it. Like it just okay. comes up at the perfect time. Yeah, music came up. I think it just surfaced a lot. Um, yeah. I definitely love music. I love art in general. I love music quite a bit. And when I was writing this, I definitely rely on music for inspiration as well. Um, there's a whole whole bunch of different, you know, musical acts out there, which give me a lot of ideas. Like who? So I'm a, I'm really big into this band Braids. They're Canadians, a trio. Oh, um, cool. Raphael Sandal Preston is my favorite singer of all time. Seriously, I think she's just absolutely incredible. Um, and then she also sings in a duo called Blue Hawaii. And she's just very versatile. I, I don't know of a more versatile singer that I've heard. I'm going to look at some um, of these. Yeah, cool. Especially in popular music. So they, you know, and Braid is a, drum, a jazz drummer and a synth player. And then her, and sometimes she plays guitar. Really creative stuff. I love Future Islands. I love um, Gardens and Villa. And they write some really cool lyrics. Really cool lyrics. Um, there's a Gardens and Villa song. Are you a lyric person? Because I'm a lyric person. Some people are music. Yeah. They hear the music first. I always, I know a lot of words to every song because yeah. for me, the lyrics are the song. I know to some people, it's, that's not it. And I well, get that. I'm really greedy with music. So I like to have both. So like, there, no, it's great. I will hear songs. It's my dog. Like, yeah. Oh, no problem. Yeah. My dog's outside. I was, and so <laughs> she hasn't barked and interrupted me. So that's nice. Um, like I like it when musical, there'll be musical tones that like kind of reflect the lyrics. Yeah. There's a song by Gardens of Villa called Magic and there's some pretty amazing songs, like very simple, but he's like setting up a tent in the backyard, flashlights make faces like witches. 
Mm. Shining a light under your chin and making that face. And there's this really light keyboard that comes in with this kind of high-pitched, almost glittery sound to it, like magic. Mm. So the sound reflects the lyrics, and they reflect each other, really. And I think it's a perfect song. I agree with you. There's this, uh, The Cure did one of my favorite songs at the Hollywood Bowl the other night. It's this song called Six Different Ways, Six Different Ways Inside Your Heart. And But it starts out with this weird little keyboard that he plays. And he's like, ding, 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 ding. And it has this weird, um, to me, the sound of love, like being in love. And then he dances a little bit. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. So I know exactly what you mean by the sound reflecting the lyrics. And mm-hmm. the my favorite musicians like Robert Smith from The Cure and David Bowie they do, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney, for that matter, from the Beatles. They do this thing where they go la 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 la. Like I always love singers who can like just go la 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 la, and and throw that into the song because they're gifting us something, right? Because it's never going to sound the same, um, you know. And you know wh- whether it's Starman or whatever song you're talking about when they right. when they do their little la la la, you know. Without making it silly, because it could be so silly, and they pull yeah. it off, right? Yeah, it's that balance of it, of the silliness yeah. and the whimsic, the whimsicalness of it, like the whimsy, right? That yeah. to me is when you get the best lyrics and the music together. It's just whimsical and beautiful. Um, so I'm going to look up these bands that you're talking about. Let's talk about this. Tell, we have a lot of writers that watch this. What is your writing process? Like what works for you? And do you have any advice about writing, how to really get in the mood, how to like because I truly believe this, um, that writing is channeling, at least for me it is. So how do you get to the space where you can hear those words or, or find it? You know, you got to get to the subconscious. I think mm-hmm. if you try too hard, writing doesn't always work. Editing works, right? We talked about, about yeah. that editing side. You can be very like, just like, oh, I'm going to edit this today and you can do it. But writing, yeah. it's kind of a different monster. It is, which is why I like editing more. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I mean, writing is still, and I say that a bit tongue in cheek because writing is still, I mean, you have some of your highest highs writing, you know, first drafts and and things come up. And I think you mentioned channeling and being open to it with writing. It's about being open to the story, allowing the story to come out. You set things in motion and you're kind of guiding this, you know, like I'm working on a novel now because I know the characters. I started a novel that I still intend to write one day, but I had to put it down because she was really clear, but he was not. And I was mm. forcing him. And in fact, this third character, a villain came and I didn't even see coming. He was really cool. But this other main protagonist, I just, he wasn't natural and I couldn't write it. So I put it aside because he wasn't revealing himself. So um, especially the longer work in novel, um, you know, the characters have to reveal themselves and they have to reveal themselves early enough that you can know that you're going to commit time to this, to this work. And that's really important to me to allow that to happen. How do you get there? Um, You know, there's any number of ways, I guess, whatever, whatever, whatever inspires you, whatever gets you going. And it's like, you have to force writing, but you also have to force yourself to sit down and get inspired. Like music is a great tool for me. Like I said, me too. Uh, Yeah. It's, it can bring a lot out. Um, when you feel something that strikes you, and it could be any environment, really hold on to it mm. and don't let it go. Like if I feel a certain way, I don't want to let it go. Yeah, uh, no, I agree with that. It so I can put it down on paper later and say, okay, like I said, I kind of thought this in college and it's like, it's, 
I think it's true. You know, like I feel really lucky to be interested in writing. Although I've joked, you know, I wish I was really into medicine. Mm-hmm. That'd be, you know, you'd make you'd make some pretty decent money. But you no, know, I like. Yeah, you pick the one profession that pretty much doesn't pay. <laughs> yeah, you know, to I love, better. you know. Yeah, but like it pays inwardly because yes. um, anything that happens can be fodder, you know. And, and even the things that like that's what's so cool. It's like not that writing's all about, you know. I don't believe in writing is just therapy. I believe in writing happy also. Yeah. You know, it's not just like, I don't want to just say, well, you know, I write my best when I'm hurting. Like, I mean, yeah, but not only when I'm hurting, I, you know, I can write and I'll, I'll have all kinds of emotions, but it's almost like you don't, you don't lose anything in life. Like everything you go through, you can, you can use. And yeah. I guess, how do you find inspiration? Well, what are the things you think about a lot? What are the things that cause you to feel a certain way? And it doesn't mean you're going to write about that literal scenario, but what is that feeling? And then how do you find that feeling in something else? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think like you said, you have to sit there and do it. Um, I'm really big on prompts. I like writing prompts. I like, um, I take an MFA program one class at a time. And I figure even if I never finish it, it's generative to me. A a teacher Uh, gives me an assignment. Okay, you have to have a 15 page piece in. I'm going to do it. What am I? I'm not going to recycle something old. I never do that. I usually try to write a piece from whole clock. And sometimes magic happens because you're putting yourself in a situation where you're almost like putting a deadline on you. Okay. You got to do this. You got, you got to have a piece in like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to write bullshit and you're going to put that to your class and they're going to think you suck as a writer (laughs) or are you really going to go deep and find something? And I do memoir. So it's a hard because I'm constantly excavating. Sometimes I'm thinking over excavating my Mm. history, you know, and trying to turn it into art and not everything in your history is art, right? You can't make everything artistic. But that idea that you could just sit down and write a novel, right? Decide that you're going to sit and write a novel. And then, yeah, maybe you put that one aside, but maybe then you start another. The whole act of sitting down to write it is what creates it, right? Exactly. And just giving into it. I mean, you got to write bad. So, yeah. And this is what I've really... um, gotten into also with editing is like that's well, a really good put it down allow yourself to write bad and like just get it down and you can always make it better and there's no limit to how many revisions you can give something so yeah go for it like just put it down and then you'll be happy you did and then you're farther along than you were if you didn't at all yeah and keep going. yeah so. i mean i started some of my memoir pieces in my longer book um just by putting the event down like i didn't try to write it I almost like said this happened, then that happened, then this happened. It was really shitty, like really <laughs> shit, like written really poorly, like just like, okay, so we did this, then we went did. This. But then you go in as the editor, and you're like, oh, how am I going to add some flair to this? You know, it's that. It's I fun. think, yeah, so it's fun. fun. I love that part of it. I I, I love doing the bare skeleton of a story, and yeah. then kind of making it really shitty. It really sucks. You're like, no one would, (laughs) no one would ever believe that this story started out like that. It's like really shit, right? Like not even like a fifth grader could have written that, but (laughs) it's the editing and stuff, you know? Yeah. Did you read a lot as a kid? I did. Although I've Mm -hmm. always been kind of picky, you know, it's like, and I read really slow. I've never been able to read fast. Mm. So I haven't read nearly as many books as I would have liked to have read at this point in my life. Because I read so slow. But um, but, but yeah. the ones you read, you really get. I read really super fast. Like too fast. I have to slow down. 
Yeah, so I, I digest it all. faster. So I'd like to take in more books, but I don't know. I get and I get real obsessive too, and I read slowly and I look at everything and I just do. When I read, I get really, really obsessive on how things are written as well as what I'm reading. I just get really into it. So, so when you edit, so this is a technical question. Sure. So I, I do this weird thing, and um, uh, some editors do do this where. I will uh, edit the first page of a piece and I can't move on until I'm done with the editing of that first page, which can sometimes take like a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I'm like, okay, now I can move on to page two. I've had to disabuse myself of that. And I've actually stopped doing that because it really did um, just take too long. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I would love, and it's a perfectionism thing that I'm trying to work on like anxiety, like how do you get over anxiety? Oh, you over, you overdo everything, but overdoing everything, meaning everything is overworked. Right. And it might be good as a public defender to do that with your calendar for court, but it's not good as an artist to do that, to overwork your pieces. I agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you do have to listen to the piece, right? Yeah. So, and I think if you have characters that are established, I mean, and even if you're writing memoirs. Yeah. They're characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You like, is this character still coming true off the page? Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've gone through that same. Oh, it is. Like, They're stories. I, I tell everyone that. Yeah. That's not me. That's Jenny, the character. Yeah. There you go. Right. Yeah. It's always going to be an approximation, even as a memoir, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, if they're established and characters feel real and they feel like they have their own kind of mentality, and like, would would they do this? You get to that point, right? Would the, my character really say or do this? Yeah. No, very true. Themselves. Yeah. And so have you ever gone back after editing and went back to your original version of a piece? Um, God, that's a really good question. Not really. Um, no, not really. That's no. when you know it's overworked. I have, I, I've had to do that. I guess I'm really lucky that I don't go quite that far. And I'm going to try and forget that you said that. No, I'm joking. But <laughs> so I well, to... I mean, sometimes no. when you overwork a piece and you're like, you know what? This story... It doesn't feel like me anymore. And well, so I, I just know. go back to the original version and do a soft edit, what I would call a soft edit. That happens you know? too, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I'll write essays too, and I can feel when the essays mm-hmm. kind of get too like heady or something. Or yeah. It's not, it's not like, or if, if I'm mixing too many images, because I like to write with imagery. If I'm mixing too many images up, then I'm losing it, you know? Like it still has yeah. to be grounded. The images have to be cohesive. They can't just be like, you can't, makes a whole bunch of metaphors in a short amount of space. Right. Totally. Totally. And, you know, there's something to be said for editing, but I also have a couple of stories that I never edited. They just came out fully formed. Um, and yeah, those are magic. Yeah. That, that's that's the magic of writing. Right. Like once in a while, a piece, or, you know, it's like people who write songs, you know, the Beatles wrote some of their best songs in like one day. And so yeah. What is art? Does art always require perspiration? Not always, I would argue. But you have to be a good enough artist to recognize when the piece is finished, right? Right. Or when maybe it's just good as is, you know? Um, And so, you know, let's move on because, okay, so everyone who's watching still, please get a copy of Hold Still Fast. Read it. Read it, read it. Um, and at the end of this, we're going to tell people how to find you, Sean. Um, but sure. let's talk really quick. We have about five minutes. I read your story, Stumbling Out the Stable. I, I think I read an excerpt of it. Uh-huh. But there's this kid, Seamus, who's um, graduating college, but he's kind of like this less than zero kid, kind of just dis- yeah. disaffected, understands that this piece of paper really doesn't mean much. 
But then this whole story, the part I read, centers around this country club. And you really capture uh, what service, because I waited tables for 10 years, what um, service culture is like, what the people that work there are like, what the bosses are like, what the staff is like. Did you ever uh, work at a country club? And tell us how that story came to be. And that's actually published by Pelicanesis as well. Is it a novella? Or is uh, it like a, a short story? It's a okay, novel. Yeah. Okay. That one's the opposite of Hold Still Fast. It's like over 400 pages. Okay. So if you want to read something long-witted. But yeah. Okay, go for that one. and then short. I'm going to read the whole thing. I, I found the okay. excerpt, and then I was like, oh, this is really good. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I joke about comment long-winded. You know, it's a novel. I mean, um, yeah, I did work at a country club, and that's where I had that setting. Um, so I worked mm-hmm. at a country club when I was going to college. But I, I was wanted... like, he had to have worked in service. Yeah. There's no way that you can write this without – living a part of that yeah i did yeah and i wanted when i wrote that book what i wanted to really do was write a character who was really ungrounded Mm. and um just sort of giving up on the realities of life because ultimately that that book is not to give too much away but still about the reality of responsibility in our lives yeah and so you got this kid who's like 19 he's going to liberal arts school and he's as you said completely disaffected um i think in the in the um bio i wrote um occasional intoxication which is kind mm-hmm. of a joke because it's really heavy intoxication for this character <laughs> but he's um you know he he's already completely like kind of checked out of school and doing the bare minimum he just doesn't believe in it but in the country club at least things are very real yeah and then they're very tangible he can feel it even though he completely dicks off the whole time with his friends and they smoke pot every shift and they're sneaking hey. drinks and yeah. Sneaking drinks, sneak, sneak, uh, sneaking which people do, cart. and I've done yeah. when I was a server. Yeah, yeah going to walk in, in. ride. Yeah, during dinner time, and then come back and bust your tables after you <laughs> took the golf cart out. Like, what can you get away with? Stuff like that. Um, but at least it was real for him. But then, because he's again like has sort of a misplaced understanding of reality, he and his buddy really rebel heavily against their boss who's just there she's just a manager at a country club in this circumstance where it's like and she's not she doesn't even want to be there she's disappointed she's a psych major and she's a manager at a country club she's as disappointed with, as you are that she's there and so they rebel against her like she represents this fight against like the man and the system but it's uh. like it's just a, a, a part-time job you're going to school <laughs> I love it. I can't re- wait to read that. Thanks. So stumbling. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I got this whole flamingo kid vibe at first. And then I was like, you know, I did room service as another job I had while I was in college. Oh, yeah. And I waitressed and bartended for 10 years. But I also, mm-hmm. when I was transitioning to UCR, I had this room service gig. And I'm, I've always wanted to write a story about it. I only did it for like six months with my best mm-hmm. friend. And um, who we used to wait tables together for years. And she got me this gig in Ontario at this hotel Aries where I do the room service and you have to take the car. The guy would open the door in like a towel, you know, so fucking creepy. I was always like, this is the creepiest shit I've ever done in my life. Like, like you have a little bit of, you know, self-awareness. Yeah. Like, like, do they want to see in a towel right now? But it was just the weirdest thing, just the act of knocking on the door. And that and then there's this forced intimacy almost, right? Yeah. And 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 you capture this in your in your story, the excerpt I read of it, um, the class issue, right? 
um, the being part of the server class. And my mom was a waitress. And so, I mean, I I really, I can't wait to read the longer work. I'm really excited about it. So everyone go get that book too. Also on the Pelicanesis site. So we're almost out of time, but tell people how they can find you. If you have any upcoming events and then if you want to read one more short piece, please do. Oh, sure. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still have my website up, um, seanpravica.com and that's, it's funny, I started to write some kind of like long, I call it a maximalist, maximalist blogging about climbing. So I'm an avid climber and I would like kind of write these like, um, yeah, I wouldn't just write about climbs or routes I had done. I had to like, you know, bring all these other things into it. Like, you know, people have mistaken me for Canadian and anyway, it makes sense, I promise. But um, I can see you as being a Canadian, actually. Yeah. Unfortunately, I hear that. Well, not unfortunately, yeah. I love hockey, but um, anyway, somehow, maybe that's why people think I'm Canadian, but yeah, I get that sometimes. Um, although I'm not, but no shame to Canadians. They're really cool people. But like that comes into it. Um, but I'm also starting a Substack, I believe this weekend. My title for my Substack was already taken, so I had come up with kind of a new thing. The writing blog was called Path Notes of a Weekend Warrior. Well, I'm going to do a different Path Notes thing, but I'm going to write about all kinds of different things in the same style of the climbing stuff. Like for example, um, really simple. I wrote an essay about how I find hamburgers kind of boring. I think they're overrated. But then I went to this character AI app to talk with a hamburglar about hamburgers. And it- The hamburglar from McDonald's? Yeah, there's like this artificial intelligence app where you can talk with different characters. And now this piece is about my conversation with the hamburglar. I got him to very quickly disown his his life of crime and stealing hamburgers but he very quickly then pivots to wanting to like become the burger emperor because he says like what do i do now and i said well like why don't you be like johnny appleseed and plant burger trees but because it's ai and it doesn't understand actual reality it thinks this mm-hmm. is a great idea it says we'll bring a an era of unprecedented peace like i get him to talk shit on ronald he's like we'll bring down the regime of ronald and he's just like this like now he wants to take over the world of the burger emperor, but a world of peace. And it's like, this is crazy. So anyway, I write about that. Well, the hamburger to me is actually a person. Cause when I was a kid, I'm a little older than you probably. Um, the characters would come to the, the McDonald's. Yeah. And my dad would do this thing where he would say they canceled it. And I'd be like, and of course they didn't cancel it just because his TV show was on or whatever. His taping yeah. shows on his VCR, whatever he was <laughs> oh, doing. That's crazy. He's getting out of it. Yeah, right. it's like, you know, telling kids, oh, Disneyland burned down or whatever, that old story. But it's like, uh, <laughs> right. no, the McDonald's, oh, they canceled it. Jeffrey the Giraffe <laughs> is not at Toys R Us. No, they canceled that. Okay, <laughs> okay. so, but I always wanted to meet the Hamburglar, and I do have pictures with the Hamburglar. But okay. I love Grimace, too. So if I'm going to talk AI with someone, I want to talk to both the Hamburglar, both Grimace, and I think Ronald. Yeah, you can talk to them all. I think they're all on there. And you can really steer the conversation although they will surprise you uh, apparently with what they will come out. Um, but sometimes it's, I don't know. It's funny. This AI stuff is pretty funny right now. It's so nascent. I'd be really not- interested to read a story about that. Cause I think there is something surreal and real and like taking the AI stuff into account. What can you do with this? You can't take it too seriously, but can you play with it artistically? Yeah. You know? And I really wasn't going to take it in that direction. It was just going to be <laughs> sort of a, like an interlude to my essay about finding burgers boring because I do, <laughs> generally speaking. Um, Most burgers this, are boring. I mean, occasionally thank you. you'll stumble onto a good one, but I'm not really a hamburger person. No, either. I think they're usually overpriced, overrated, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, I like sandwiches, like a good sandwich. 
Yeah, it makes sense. I'd prefer mm -hmm. a chicken sandwich to a hamburger. Oh, for sure. For okay. sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We're on board there. So I love yeah. food. Yeah, me too. I yeah. really do. Okay. So do you want to read? So let me just do a really quick plug. Um, okay. On June 7th, I have Mary Beth O'Connor from Junkie to Judge is on a wonderful memoir. She's mm. a wonderful writer. She's a retired judge. She was an administrative law judge. But this book is about kind of how she got there and the life of addiction that she lived before she went to law school and all this. So she has a really fascinating story. She's a beautiful writer. So I can't wait to have Mary Beth O'Connor on. She'll be here June 7th, a Wednesday at 7 p.m. Um, so how can people find you really quick, Sean? Uh, SeanPravica.com. Perfect. I've got a contact form. I've got some old, like as a climbing blog articles, but then I'm going to pull up the Substack link when I launch that and start getting, starting putting these essays out there. So. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, great. So do you want to end us with a short piece? Sure. Like maybe one piece? Sure. I can do one piece, especially since we were talking about music, I'm going to pull up something towards the end. And I just have to find it. And really quick, Mark Gibbons from Pelicanesis said about your novel, the characters are really well-defined and believable, but it's not only character-driven. There's a great plot that propels the narrative. Ooh, yeah, thank nice. you, Mark. And I, as a memoirist, I read a lot of fiction because I, I learn a lot about storytelling from fiction writers. You know, it's not always linear. It's not always one perspective. It's not always first person. So I can't wait to read your novel. Oh, cool. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. That's awesome. And I've, I've read a, like a 20 page excerpt and it's brilliant. I can't, I can't wait to read the whole thing. I wasn't sure how long it was. Now that I know that I have 400 pages to delve into, I'm going to save it for my vacation. Sweet. That'll work. Should yeah. give you, um, yeah, there, there's a few pages to go. So, <laughs> well, now I'm getting caught up in which one to read, but I think we'll just go with the, uh, I'm going to go with one that I wasn't going to read at all, but what there's page? an image. There's some images to it, so now I feel like reading it. So it kind of somehow feels appropriate. What page are you on? Um, 198, Bends Toward Magic. Okay, Bends Toward Magic. The tree was a bearer of stories, remembered, imagined, sometimes both. Its branches meandering, reaching, transforming. Sunlight bends towards magic. A hydra's sprouted necks, a woman's form twisted in dance, a crucifix, two bodies embracing for all time. They lay underneath it, filtered sunlight falling on their faces to rest. Aww, that's a beautiful one to end on. Is that the same couple? Um, or is this I a didn't different see couple? that as being them, but it really could be. It really could be, right? It really could be. I could, I could see it as them because they have yeah. a lot of physicality, that couple. They do. I do kind of yeah. lean that way, um, especially with where it's placed. It's towards the end. So, yeah, what a beautiful piece. I love anything about magic. And speaking of magic, this has been a magical conversation. I really appreciate you. Um, if you um, send me your link, I'll share it on the Life of Gem page. Um, sure. And I'll, actually, I can just pull it up and I'll put it on my Life of Gem page of his website. Everyone that wants to go there, also reshare the Pelicanesis site for everyone to check out his two books. Okay. So thank you again, Sean. It's been such a joy to have you on. Oh, so Very fun. fascinating conversation. Oh, so fun talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Great. Thanks for rescheduling it for my niece's graduation. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Her. This is a big deal. yeah. She just had a baby too. So it's a really big deal. Oh, and yeah, I, we, I thought it was in the afternoon. It ended up being in the evening. So 
Um, I'm going to repost this and uh, kind of boost it. So everyone watch, share this episode, buy Sean's books, especially Hold Still Fast. You're going to love it. And it's really one of those books you could kind of read a little bit at a time and put down and then pick back up, which is always nice. So thank you, Sean. You have a great night. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.